from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, I am happy to be interviewing Sonia Huber, who is a recent, somewhat, graduate of The Ohio State University with an MFA in Creative Writing. She uh, graduated just a few years ago, 2004, and she is currently an assistant professor at Georgia Southern University, where she's in Creative Writing, and she's a faculty member in their low-residency MFA program at Ashland University as well. Uh, she has written the books Opa Nobody, The Backwards Research Guide for Writers, and most recently, Cover Me, a health insurance memoir. So welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank so. you. Thanks. Thank you. And welcome back to Ohio, uh, where you were here for a number of years, mm-hmm. getting, among other things, as I said, your MFA, but also a, uh, a master's in public interest journalism. Mm-hmm. Why don't we start uh, from there? Uh, you also have a sociology anthropology BA. Yep. So kind of all over the map yeah, here. All over is the this, map. this is what happens with an author. Yes, it's unfocused. Go, okay. <laughs> she said that. I didn't say that. Tell me about uh, moving from something like your BA into uh, journalism. How did that work for you? How did that change you as a writer, or did it not change you? Tell me about that experience. Um, Well, I went to a small college in Minnesota. They didn't have... There was an English major, no creative writing, no journalism. I knew I wanted to write, but um, around middle of my undergraduate career, I found that I could not write a very good English paper on Shakespeare. Hmm. So why why not the Shakespeare? What was the Shakespeare problem? It was it was sort of a big I, because I've always been really passionate about writing, and I tried to do a a fictional story instead of trying to do the Shakespeare paper. And I don't know what I was trying to do with that, but um, long story short, um, I'm not I'm not good at English papers. Okay, so that's so, why you're a professor in English. Exactly, right? and yeah. I yeah, it's also why I had vowed at various points to you know never be involved in academia or in teaching and mm-hmm. here I am okay. loving Good. all that but I mean long story short is that I ended up going even though it doesn't seem to make sense sociology and anthro led me to a lot of the interests as far as the kind of things I write about okay. so, how did they lead you to that tell me about um, that background even in even in undergrad I was always really interested in public health and also in the ways that people's physical existence connects to the ways that they think about their their lives and tell stories about their lives. Okay. So. so that informs your latest book, mm-hmm. and we'll get mm-hmm. to that. But tell me about moving from that. Uh, you've got a background then in journalism, and I think uh-huh. you worked as a journalist for a little uh-huh. while. Yep. And then you went back for your creative, Yeah. your MFA. Those seem to me like two fields that um, may have some arguments with each other. Yeah. Yeah. How, um, how did that work out for you? Well, I uh, I had always wanted to study creative writing, and I didn't know that you could go to graduate school and work your way through it as a teacher. So I got the brochures for the creative writing degrees from a few places and said, oh, my God, this is so expensive. I'll never do this. Put that pamphlet away. And uh, after working you know, as a freelance journalist primarily, uh, I was working as an associate publisher of a magazine in Chicago and found out about a program here, the Kiplinger program, uh, which at the time was due offering a one-year master's degree for journalists. Came here, did that, and it was sort of a covert 
but constant thing that all the journalists were saying, you gotta go teach, you gotta go take uh, creative nonfiction with Bill Rohrbach, who, who was here at the time, and a wonderful author and a, a huge influence on me. And uh, so I snuck into that workshop and then had to plan on insomnia for the nights after the workshop because I was so freaking excited. Mm-hmm. So that's a, uh, and then, you know, just gradually, really through those classes began to learn a lot more about literary journalism and to see that, you know, there's a, there's a huge history of those fields, the more creative and the traditionally seen as objective journalism, there's, there's nothing but connection between the two. So as I began to learn more about the linkages, I began to feel more comfortable being right in the middle. Okay. So. Is that where you're placing your book? This latest book, where where do you put that on the continuum of Cover Me, a health insurance memoir? I think it's it's pretty solidly just on memoir, okay. and that was I mean that was sort of a hard thing to try and figure out what to do with it. Um, I've done a lot of reporting about healthcare issues, and had so much feedback from people uh, wondering whether I could put the context of the health care situation in this country into the book. And for a lot of reasons, I decided to focus more and more on my own story, partially because I think that the debate has, there's so much jargon associated with it, Um, even terms like, say, single payer. I mean, in some ways, I feel like it, it... it makes something very abstract out of something that's very personal. And so I kind of, um, I had to take several steps back from the reporting and say, what, what is my own story? So mine is very much, it's very much towards the creative and, uh, I, yeah, it's not journalism okay. at all. Uh, well, the, the interesting thing though, is that there's a lot of places in this where, uh, as I was reading along, I thought, she's being a journalist sort of about her own life. Oh, it's a human interest piece about her own life. Uh-huh. And I was trying to, fit together the pieces of your past uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. because you know reading an author's uh, memoir you always figure oh I'm really going to know the author by the right end. right and so that was part of how I had approached the book uh-huh. I was curious about what was creative nonfiction what uh-huh. was more of a journalistic take and I thought mm-hmm. I was seeing some mm-hmm. of that but apparently not so we'll, well I mean that's a really good <laughs> question actually because I think that ideally with my students the idea of being a journalist about your own life that's cr- it's critical to actually writing something mm-hmm. decent and something that connects to other people's concerns. So I'm actually, I'm psyched that. Okay. Well, I'm glad we could psych you. <laughs> that works well for you. Uh, you also, I mean, you, you were here for the MFA, which is a, a three-year program. Uh-huh. So then you are also connected with a low residency program. Yeah. And I'm curious about the difference between those two, because at... At some place like Ohio State, where you were here for three years, you develop all these bonds right. with people, and um, especially it seemed to be in the creative writing field where you go through a lot of classes. There are small classes, there are workshops. Mm-hmm. You're responding to people. Mm-hmm. Those people, which I, you know, was on the periphery of watching all of you with your berets, and um, 
and but, our deep sighs. And your deep sigh. And a lot of coffee. <laughs> but anyway, as I was watching all of that, I thought, you know, that's really interesting because these people are really involved in each other's lives. Uh-huh. And they're, they're influencing each other in a way that sort of... Things like the PhD seem less likely to do uh-huh. because you went off and you wrote by yourself, and it was rare that you responded to other people's writings in a more academic thing. In the way that I take it, always right. happens in MFA right. because people would say, "Oh, I, you know," they would talk about what people were writing about. Right. Like, okay, so Sonia writes about X. Sonia writes about. This and that and becomes that. part of what people know about and talk about. Right. Yeah. Whereas other people, you say that person's a Brit lit person, uh-huh. and I don't know what they're doing. You, know, or you don't know what's going on in their, in their lives at home. Right. Brit literature. Who knows? So it could be anything. But a low residency program seems to me a very different kind of uh-huh. animal. You've uh-huh. got uh, people who don't know each other, perhaps, other than a once or twice a year. How often does, do they get together? How does um, that work? We actually just meet once a year. The program, the low res MFA at Ashland University, which is in Ohio, um, we have a, a two-week camp like a residency thing and it's incredibly intense mm-hmm. and uh, and then the rest of the time it's all just online and it's very small classes it's I have four I have five students right now um, and when I first started teaching there partially because of my just the wonderful experience in the OSU MFA program where you have that amazingly tight cohort of people who not only write together but work together hang out together, live near each other. You know, I just, I didn't understand how you could replicate that. And, you know, in some senses, it is a very different beast. Um, but, you know, over time, part of what I've come to see is that, at least for me in nonfiction, you get so close with your fellow writers so fast because of the writing. And you end up learning so much about each other's lives. And the the low residency part, the summer program does that there's that sort of intense in the trenches no more workshop please more workshop um and you know students get really bonded through that with the instructors and we eat together and um but i was you know initially i was like how the computer seems impersonal how can you how is that going to feel connected in any way and i've just been stunned at it's a function of the low class sizes. You know, the fact that there's four to an instructor or five. I spend a lot of time with the students, but they already know each other through a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. So the first residency starts the program, and then they have sort of a face-to-face relationship that then transfers online. Okay. But What kind of feedback do you give online? What's your most common sort of thing? I know it's individualized to the writing, uh-huh. but do you find that you keep saying, say to the same writer, I'm still wanting X from you or, or Y? How does that work out? What are the instructions well, it's, like? Well, you know, it's, it, one thing that is really different with a low residency program is that and it's attracting, I think, for the most part, a really different kind of student. It's students that already have complete lives launched, you know, with kids, careers. They're place-bound because of uh, jobs or caring for family members. So the idea of how do I fit writing into a life that's already overflowing, and like the time management aspect of it is actually the one of the biggest pieces that we talk about. And then as with my... with other kinds of writers, the the other thing is um, to pay attention to the details. So that's one thing that uh, I think that, and I, I use the Cover Me book as an example, that you can, 
there's fascinating things about our life stories that are hidden in the mundane stuff like a health insurance card. Mm -hmm. So I tell them to always, you know, go back to the experience, go back to the things that you're obsessed with that you think no one else is going to care about. So are you doing a lot of people in the, is this uh, aimed at people who want to do memoir or is, and, and tell me about memoir as a subset of creative nonfiction mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. how that works in a program like this or how it works for you. I mean, uh -huh. memoir to me seems to be having sort of a resurgence or uh -huh, a lot of, of, of interest in it. Definitely. And, you know, sometimes I, I like, some of that, and there, right. there are sometimes I've reacted like, okay, you're just sort of complaining for no reason. Right, right. You know, how, for example, how do you write memoir if you haven't had a bad life? Oh, it's, yeah, I talk about that in all my <laughs> classes, definitely. Well, in my case, you happen to walk into trouble. You find trouble. Mm -hmm. you, know? uh, you, you counsel them to go out and find yeah, trouble. Exactly. Then, I say, you know, go to a bar. You've got a really, fight. yeah, exactly. Good. So I've got a class in ruining your life in various ways so that you okay. can write a class in jail. Yes. Class in, okay. Um, well, I think memoir is really popular, and that has led to this awareness in publishing. Oh, it is really popular. We can make money with this. You mm -hmm. know, so there's this sort of snowball effect of what will people buy? Mm -hmm. And that leads to this, and there's a huge range of memoir out there, and a lot of times what gets attention in the marketplace is what shapes people's expectations of memoir. Um, for for me, the field of creative nonfiction, I mean, some people prefer to call it literary nonfiction to kind of make the umbrella feel even bigger or because the creative term maybe implies creative like taking liberties. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it's a it's a piece of it, but it's a pretty big piece. And then sort of in the middle, if I had a whiteboard, I've got this umbrella that I draw <laughs> no whiteboard. Um, and then sort of in the middle is like uh, the personal essay. So uh, sort of a little bit between literary journalism and memoir. Okay. And then you go more towards literary journalism. It's like where the, where the self is located in relation to the subject matter. Okay. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, memoirist and OSU graduate Sonia Huber, author of Cover Me, a health insurance memoir. For more of our interviews, visit us at writerstalk.org or facebook.com slash writerstalk. While you're there, you can check out our upcoming events and submit questions for our upcoming interviews. Now, back to my conversation with Sonia Huber and our discussion of the emotional politics of memoir writing. Tell me about negotiating that self in relation to what you're going to write about. One of the things that I noticed, and this is the second memoir um, in not that long that I've run into, um, there's another significant figure in yeah. the book, um, your husband, who doesn't get named. Yeah. And... Um, what leads to that? I mean, I guess if somebody does, my, my thought on that was if you go to any search engine, you can eventually find out who these people are, right? right? So that it seems to me a device that you're using in some way for your reader or yourself. Yeah. And why? Um, th and th this is, this gets at something that is at the ethical trouble with writing nonfiction about your own lives is mm -hmm. that uh, in many cases there's people in the book who, like my friend Kathy, she's throughout the narrative and a lot of it is personal information about you know, her struggle with, um, with breast cancer. Um, she was an active part of the, of the writing process 
and I showed her earliest drafts and got a lot of really great feedback from her. And I feel most comfortable naming someone if they're if they're interested in playing that role. Mm-hmm. Um, in my first book, my mom was just you know they become co-authors in a lot of ways, and in situations where someone is not interested, or the the either the relationship is a little bit um, there's less of a relationship there, or the relationship is rocky. What I have tried to do is um, focus on the only the elements of that relationship where I felt comfortable telling pieces of that person's story. So, it, I mean, it comes to the ethical. Not everybody who writes memoir feels this way, but I, I really feel that um, I try to tell as little about other people's lives as possible, except for when I, you know, because I feel like I'm writing about my life. My obligation is to sort of dish on myself, first of all. Mm-hmm. And then people don't, other people don't ask for that. You know, it's, it's, in some ways, it's horrible to have a memoirist in your life. And people are always like, don't put that in the book. Don't write about this. Don't write about this embarrassing thing I did. But um, I try first to, you know, to dish on myself. Um, That's an interesting verb you're using, <laughs> to dish on yourself. Uh, because it, it, you know, implies uh, you're making a moral, sort of a moral judgment on yourself. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you're, you're telling things that maybe you shouldn't tell. Right. Do you, but is that something you're struggling with here? I, I do struggle with that in writing. About yeah. yourself. Even though it's your story to tell, that there are things that you shouldn't be telling. Yeah, or shouldn't, or... I mean, one thing that I've noticed, because of the ethical issues with writing a memoir, and because of my training in journalism, I think, I err much more towards the side of being aware of what I, as a narrator, can do to people when I write about them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the reason uh, I dish on myself so much is that I'm trying to correct for that. Some ways I overcorrect for it, and I've gotten I had got feedback um, from my fiance Cliff Price about this in the first draft. You just named him, yeah, (laughs) and uh, Cliff, um, and uh, and he was invaluable in saying that in trying to be self-critical, you're actually going, uh, you're presenting a less than accurate version of yourself. You know, so in trying to balance all those ethical responsibilities, sometimes you end up being inaccurate. So then I try and correct and be more generous. But it's this constant, you know, sort of tightrope that they walk. When you've got somebody you say, like Kathy, who's Mm -hmm. the character and the person in your life, what kind of feedback are you willing to accept from somebody like that? Are you willing to say, if they say to you, you know what, I don't want you to tell about Uh this part of the uh book, but you think it's an integral part, how do you negotiate that as a writer? I cut it out. Okay. Yeah. Always just cut it out. Okay. Yeah, I ha- and I have, you know. Um, so in your next book, when you're talking about difficult interviewers, I can... Okay. <laughs> you can say... I can say, oh, just take that out. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, but, you know, so there were certain people who I didn't... I tell my students, if there's a person who's a central role, there's no hard and fast rules about this. Mm-hmm. But I tell, I tell them to ask people, did I do that in every case in this book? No. And for specific reasons, either because I trusted my portrayal, because of a of a relationship that uh, that led me to believe that I shouldn't, for various reasons, and or if I had tried to limit the person's role so much that they were a minor character. Mm-hmm. So, but um, but you know, I've received. The one feedback that I got from, say, my first book was something that I didn't even think to ask. I, I had taken my sister out of the book completely, 
And I was so proud because I always assumed that no one wants to be written about. And then she was upset because she said, what, I don't even matter enough about you to put me in your book? So, yeah, there's dangers in not. Right. And, you know, I'm not going to bring up the fact that um, I worked with you during the period that this time that this book covers. But I'm the Doug Dangler book is, right. is coming no, out. The edition is coming. Yeah, there's no all over, you know. Uh, so tell me um, about your students' reaction to this book. Do you share the book with them? Do you say, oh, yeah. here it is. Okay. And you share your writing with them through the whole thing so Definitely. they see the, the, the pain. The agony. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, it's weird in general. I write about personal stuff, both in this book and in essays. And um, I think for the same reason that some faculty members say, I don't even want to be on Facebook, you know, and I'm a lot more than on Facebook. But <laughs> I'm on yeah, you're on barely, the, but let's book. Be, yeah, yeah. The uh, cover, if uh, that will also put you up here, is is a little risque. Yeah, you said that you had worked with them uh, with your publisher uh, mm -hmm. on on this, and it, it turned out to be the dream cover that you were hoping yeah. for. Yeah, although and, you didn't get. And I didn't, I didn't really even. This is University of Nebraska Press, and uh, there they also did my first book, and this, which didn't feature nudity on the cover. That's right, featured okay. a face of my grandfather. Okay. Um, and this book, I just hoped, I wanted this image, but I didn't even say anything about it. It was just like, oh, this would be the perfect image, given the, given the, the title. Um, thank you, Bruce Springsteen, for the title, which is the inspiration. His you know, I, I have to say that I've been humming that song <laughs> for a while. Uh, I don't know whether it's because of that. But, but um, and so I didn't even, you know, I didn't tell them anything. And then I opened the file that they sent me, and I was like, and that was it exactly. And I said, oh, my gosh, it's perfect. But um, but it's it's racy for a, a university press especially, mm -hmm. and so I'm excited. I'm happy that they went there because it's going to get attention. Mm -hmm. So anything for a buck is what you're telling <laughs> your your students. Okay, good. No, well I think <clears throat> okay. So the idea of the book and also the cover, I think when people hear the phrase healthcare policy. They tend to go, and you think like, oh my God, deductible, copay, and you know you start to get that sick feeling of medical debt, medical bankruptcy. Oh Lord, a phone call with someone, and you know someone in an office somewhere. And the book is a conscious attempt to try and figure out what is this issue really about it's about people's real lives and real bodies and it connects to every other element of our lives you know your choice to have kids your sex life your you know the where you work how you sleep when you die you know and so part of it for me is it's a it's a conscious attempt to focus on myself because in a way, I was sort of looking at it myself, not just even as a journalist, but as an anthropologist, um, which is ridiculous because, you, you know, if I take one physics class, I'm definitely not a physicist. But um, influenced by training in anthropology, the idea of how, how does something big like this affect the way that I see my choices in my life. So the raciness is kind of to, partly to get back to the idea of this is about physical bodies. I was also curious about how you felt about negotiating the political aspects of it. Because, uh -huh. you know, when someone sees a health insurance memoir, especially right now, there's, I think, this strong 
thought of, okay, this is going to be a political screed. This is going to yeah. be all involved in the politics of it. And there is, I mean, there is a little bit where you talk about having been a um, an activist uh-huh. for um, uh, healthcare reform mm-hmm. or change. Mm-hmm. And um, what was the negotiation for that for your life? Because I don't recall in the book that there's a lot of uh, things that you're expressly political about, right. other than saying right. that you wanted that that you were looking for coverage at a time when you didn't have it, and that's sort exactly. of inherently political at the moment. Yeah, um, and I started from a place of being very, very angry and very informed about this issue, mm-hmm. and then, um, and some people have read the book. A few have said, oh, it's not political enough. There's not enough messages in there about how exactly we can fix the system. And um, I think we know how to fix it. (laughs) You know, I think it's about uh, political consensus as opposed to not having the solutions. Um, And so I decided to take out um, an element in my own writing that felt very didactic to me. Because I felt like that tends to split an audience into people that are either going to agree or disagree with you know one particular position. And since I was trying to examine what does this mean for my life, I didn't want to drive readers away who might not agree with a paragraph about like my vision for, for how to fix it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and also... I. Uh, the about up to like seventeenth draft, the thing was so angry, and my, and my first, you know, I'm angry, obviously, in the book, but it wasn't working. It was awful, as far as you know, is this a readable thing? It was just like opening this cover and having someone yell at you, you know. And sort of after a while, it's not a nice experience. Everyone's got their own stress. You don't want to be yelled at, even if you agree with the yeller. Um, so I tried to tone it down and make it funny. Partially because some of the readers have said, oh, God, a health insurance memoir. Like, just the idea of health insurance raises your blood pressure, you know, because mm-hmm. it's such a highly charged situation. I don't want to add to that. Okay. So. Well, I noticed at the beginning of the book that the, uh, some chapters of this had been had appeared other places. Mm-hmm. And that so you're, you're knitting them to back together uh-huh. at some point. What was that experience like as a writer? How difficult was it for you to take these pieces that had been published in different places, probably with, you know, different audiences that you might yeah. have had in mind, and you're coming back and you're saying, here, you're taking mm-hmm. out the anger that might have worked, I guess, for one kind of publication, but not for this kind of publication. Right, exactly. And part of it is, how do you get a book published? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the... In my my first book, I wrote it as as a narrative from beginning to end. And so in the first book, I felt it was really hard to take a chunk out and publish it somewhere that just didn't work. Mm -hmm. So second time around, I said, I would love to be able to publish chunks first. So I wrote all these chunks and then putting them together, they just look like this motley crew of, you know, these like, you know, just jagged teeth, all different sizes and none of them fit together. And I really had to take the whole book apart and, um, and rewrite almost everything to get them to fit. And so, par- partially because of the voice issue and just the, how the tone was all over the place, I kind of had to lop off the top, the, the, you know, the, the, most, uh, the most sort of extreme stuff in order to get the book to have sort of more of a continuous feeling to it. How long did that take you? Um, that voice problem 
it took a year at least to fix it. Yeah, and then the drafting phase actually as a whole. I've been working on this book, uh, gathering material and writing on it since uh, 2001. So, yeah. Uh, that's a long time. Um, <laughs> For such a little book. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, it's got smallish type. You know, it's a very, um, very uh, compact type. You know, so like, tell me the, the last thing, which do you also run the Georgia uh, uh, Southern University Creative Resources blog? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a resource blog right, as opposed to sort of a, a memoirist blog? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's like all the different types of the voices that you can have in nonfiction. Obviously, it changes depending on your audience. Mm -hmm. And my voice in something like the resources that I try and gather for creative writers is is about encouraging writers and may, helping them to be aware not necessarily about their own life experience but about their creative process and how choices you make uh, can either create space in your life for writing or not so in some ways it's a lot more analytic but it's a lot more using the journalism stuff of I know 3,000 websites here's 10 of them mm -hmm. so it's it's a lot more organized and I think memoir, um, it seems messy on the page when you read it, but in structuring it behind behind the text that you see on the page, there's you know there's a lot of analytic and structure that goes into that. So okay. it feels like it's like same cake, different icing. Kind of thing. Okay, so we come to we end with a food metaphor, <laughs> even though I think you just went to lunch. Anyway, Sonia Huber, I want to thank you very much you. for being here on Writer's Talk. Thank you very much. And your website, again, is... www.soniahuber.com You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Sonia Huber. For more of our video and audio interviews, visit us on the web at writerstalk.org or friend us at facebook.com slash writerstalk. Join us next week for recent Thurber House guest, James L. Swanson, who will discuss his book, Bloody Crimes, The Chase for Jefferson Davis and the Death Pageant for Lincoln's Corpse. Until then, this is Doug Dangler from Ohio State University saying, keep writing.